Jim Pullen. And I'm Joel Parker. This is KGNU's How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, July 24th, 2012. Coming up, we talk about climate weirdness with author Michael Limonick. And we'll also talk about why it may be a good idea to open up the floodplains rather than controlling them with Boulder's Marcus Mitch. Well, good morning. I'm happy to be here, and it's going to be an interesting chat. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. As organisms go... Microplasma genitalium is about as simple as they come. It's a small parasitic bacterium transmitted during sexual intercourse, and it is the one with the second fewest number of genes of any known critter. Thanks to its relative simplicity, researchers at Stanford decided it was a perfect candidate to develop the first-ever model that predicts the phenotype, the physical expression of the genes, from the workings of the genes themselves. The model includes all of the cell's molecular components and interactions. The Stanford team divided the cell into a couple of dozen different and independent functions or jobs. For example, DNA can replicate and repair damage, and proteins can decay and activate. Each of these functions gets its own physics and chemistry model. Each cell function is allowed to run alone for a little while, then shares its condition with other cell functions. The model keeps going until the cell is kaput. What can you do with a model like this? Well, it's a lot easier to run controlled experiments using models. And the results will be like in life. And when you have a blueprint, you can make changes and see what happens. So this kind of model can be used to engineer new organisms. Look for the research in the journal Cell from last week. CO2 emissions are going up and up. It's a bad habit we can't shake. In 2011, emissions of the greenhouse gas increased by 3%. China's output was up triple. In both the EU and the U.S., the amount spewed into the atmosphere declined. But before we gloat about our local decline, remember that we in the States produced about 17 metric tons of CO2 per person, the weight of two African elephants, versus about a single Indian elephant's worth in China. Per capita emissions in the EU were about the same as China's. The findings were published in a recently released report from the European Commission Joint Research Center and the Netherlands Environmental Assessment Agency. The report is titled Trends in Global CO2 Emissions. Yesterday, America's first woman astronaut, Dr. Sally Ride, died of pancreatic cancer. She was 61 years old. 29 years ago, at the age of 32, Ride made history as America's youngest and first woman astronaut when she flew aboard the space shuttle, the Challenger. The year was 1983. It was only the shuttle's seventh mission in Challenger's second wild ride. Dr. Ride had joined the astronaut corps in the class of 1978. The six women and 29 men were known as the 35 New Guys. They were chosen from 8,000 candidates. I remember the first time that I looked towards the horizon, I saw the blackness of space and then this bright blue earth. 
and then I noticed right along the horizon, it looked as if someone had taken a, a royal blue crayon and just traced along Earth's horizon. And then I realized that that blue line, that really thin royal blue line, was Earth's atmosphere. And that was all there was of it. And it's so clear from that perspective how fragile our existence is. It makes you appreciate how important it is to take care of that atmosphere. In 1984, Ride lofted into the firmament again during the shuttle program's 13th flight, again aboard the Challenger. During the eight-day orbit, the crew deployed the Earth Radiation Budget Satellite. The data this satellite gathered about the growing ozone hole helped lead to the Montreal Protocol, which banned the widely used coolant chlorofluorocarbons in the industrialized nations. Ride had been scheduled for a third mission once again aboard the Challenger, but that mission was aborted at the last minute, and she was not on the roster for the next Challenger mission in 1986. That saved her life. 1986 is the year when the Challenger exploded, killing all seven astronauts on board. After the Challenger disaster, Ride joined the commission that investigated the accident. In 1987, Dr. Ride left NASA to become the director of the University of California's California Space Institute. In 2001, she founded Sally Ride Science to help young women pursue technical careers. She is remembered for her love of space exploration and for her inspiration to young scientists. We feel it when we step into the heat outside. Something weird is up with the climate. Not only is it hot, but we're weathering a drought of historic proportions. That drought has set the stage for crop losses and for wildfires that are burning up the homes of people who live in the mountains here in Colorado. And the strangeness continues across the globe. We learn on the Internet that ice at the poles is melting feverishly. And we've just lost another huge chunk. Last week, scientists announced that in Greenland, a mass of glacial ice twice the size of Manhattan Island is slipping away. To help us make sense of the strangeness, Climate Central has just released a new book, Global Weirdness, Severe Storms, Deadly Heat Waves, Relentless Drought, Rising Seas, and the Weather of the Future. One of the book's authors, Michael Limanek, is with us today. Welcome, Michael. Thanks. Good to be here. Michael, uh, why did uh, Climate Central decide to write a book on climate change? Well, actually, uh, an editor came to us. Um, he read a column by Thomas Friedman in the New York Times that uh, lamented all of the hype and the, uh, the um, disinformation and the confusion about climate change. He said, somebody should just sit down and get all the world's experts together and write a straightforward book that just explains simply what we know about climate change how we know it, and, and what we might do about it. And uh, our editor, the man who ended up as our editor, 
said, you know, I'm going to do this. And he uh, went looking and found Climate Central and asked us to put it together. You know, the book covers a lot of ground in a short space in a format that I really like, uh, short chapters, just two or three pages. What audience is this book aimed towards? The, the audience is, uh, I'll tell you what, who it's not for. It's not for the super skeptics who are basically never going to be convinced by any logical argument. It's not really for the people who care a lot about climate change and, and worry a lot about it because they already know uh, what's going on. It's really for that mass of people in the middle who do get those conflicting messages. They hear people saying, uh, we're all going to die uh, you know, by the end of the century. Other people say, no, it's nothing. It's a plot. It's a hoax. Uh, and, and it's really very hard to separate fact from, from, uh, from fantasy. So we set out to reach those people who know it's important, but they're not really quite sure why or exactly what is going on. So what are the main lines of evidence that point towards uh, human involvement in large-scale changes in the climate? Oh, boy, do, do we have an hour here? No, um, just kind of hit the highlights. What are the, what are the main, what are the main okay. lines of evidence? Okay, main lines of evidence. Uh, first of all, uh, we know that carbon dioxide is a heat-trapping gas. We knew that as early as the 1800s. We know we have been putting extra carbon dioxide into the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution. So, um, so in theory, the temperature should go up. We know that uh, starting in the early 90s, that signal of rising temperature began to be clear, and it's clearer than ever now. Uh, we know that sea level is rising, another prediction for what should happen if the Earth warms up and ice starts to melt. Uh, we know that uh, if you look at the chemical signature of the CO2 in the atmosphere, uh, it bears the signature of having come from burning fossil fuels. Um, uh, lots more, lots more. Um, the ocean is getting more acidic as it absorbs carbon dioxide. Uh, it's it pretty much everywhere you look. And then finally, there is the beginning of weather extremes that were predicted, things like droughts and heat waves and, uh, and uh, on the other hand, torrential rainstorms, which are growing in frequency. So it basically, uh, there was a prediction of what should happen, and it is now starting to happen. Well, you know, I hear a lot of entrenched opinions from uh, folks about global warming. Uh, can we look at a couple of these? Uh, for example, people uh, tell me that the Earth has warmed and cooled before, uh, for example, during the Middle Ages. Uh, what's a response to that? Well, my first response to that is always, Absolutely, that's a great question, and it's a really—it's the most, the first thing you should think of. Uh, if if um, if the Earth is warming, or it has warmed, you know, the Middle Ages, or even millions of years ago when the dinosaurs were around and, and palm trees grew near the poles, or during the ice ages. I mean, the Earth was changing, uh, climate was changing long before humans even existed. So why do we just assume it's humans? It's a very, very legitimate scientific question. And the answer is, uh, partly what I told you before, but also that scientists have looked at all of the explanations uh, that um, uh, were valid for natural episodes of climate change. Um, and they've measured those, so they've measured the brightness of the sun, they've measured the cloud cover, they've measured uh, whether there uh, have been more or less volcanoes lately, which, uh, which can affect the climate. And one by one, they've ruled these things out as the causes of climate change. And so when you've ruled out all the natural causes, 
you're left with a man-made cause. You know, well, what are some of the phenomena that are res- resisting explanation uh, as, uh, as anthropogenic climate change? Resisting explanation. Hmm. Uh, I would say that there. Re- I don't know of any. So, so one thing people do look at and point to, uh, they say, well, since the late 90s, the temperature hasn't been rising as fast, but we've been putting more CO2 in the atmosphere than ever. Why not? Why, why isn't the temperature rising? And the answer uh, that climate scientists offer is that it's not just an either-or situation, that it's either human-caused or natural. There are both factors involved. The human is the more powerful, we believe, right now, but, but natural factors, natural climate variations still exist. So it is perfectly plausible, and in fact, you expect that the warming will go faster, at some times it'll slow down. At some times it might even cool for a few years before it re- resumes that onward march upward. And so, so really, I don't know of any um, any evidence that um, goes against the idea that we are changing the climate. Well, that's all the time we have for now, Michael. And many thanks for sharing with us. My pleasure. I'm glad. I was glad to be here. We've been talking to Michael Lemonick about Climate Central's new book, Global Weirdness, which is being released today. You're with How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jim Pullen. We next turn to new ideas about how humans can adapt to global weirdness by undoing what we've already done. Marcus Minch, the director of Boulder's Institute for Social and Environmental Transition, has joined us in the studio today to talk about why de-engineering the floodplains in Southwest Asia may be best. Welcome to How on Earth, Marcus. Welcome. I'm pleased to be here. It's a very good morning. Marcus, can you tell me about uh, the ISET Institute here in Boulder? Sure, be happy to. You know, as Michael was saying, we're committed to climate change, whether it's human-caused or otherwise. But so what? Higher energy, higher variability, more active water cycle, what do you actually do about it? Um, ISET is designed as an organization to actually address that transition, to identify solutions through partnership, through joint learning, and through joint work. It's not a Western-based, top-down organization. We're actually more present in South and Southeast Asia. We work on the climate, water, energy nexus, and on the question of social transition. You know, your uh, organization has some unusual and interesting guiding, uh, guiding policies when it comes to this work. Can you share those with us? A lot of our focus is on partnership. It's on the idea that solutions to global challenges emerge from local contexts, that local people have often the best insights to those solutions, 
And so our ideas are founded around this concept of sharing and joint work to come up with joint solutions. Right. You know, uh, we met at the Natural Hazards Workshop a couple of weekends ago, and I was impressed by a talk that you gave uh, where you talked about de-engineering the the, uh, basins, the floodplains in South Asia and India and Bangladesh. And uh, that uh, struck me as very interesting. Uh, Can you introduce us to your work in South Asia? Sure. I mean, a lot of our work in South Asia emerged out of uh, collaborations among graduate students uh, back in the mid-80s around water resources. And one of the things that became most evident as you looked in the climate context, but also in the historical context, is that uh, you have a high variability environment, and many of the engineering solutions that have traditionally been proposed for river basin management don't really respond to that variability particularly well. And so this is these are concepts from evolutionary biology, adaptation, resilience, uh, and they figure prominently in your work, whereas they don't necessarily as figure figure as prominently in regular engineering work. And I also find that interesting. Uh, what is the role of variability in the human and natural environment to finding solutions to these problems? Well, traditionally, we have looked at variability as something that can be defined as a uh, statistical distribution uh, based on past history rather than as a walking, changing set of parameters. When the variability is changing, we can no longer rely on that past history And one of the core issues there is, do the systems on which we depend continue delivering services despite changing conditions? And the foundation for us to adapt, to change our strategies as conditions change, depends on the ability of those systems, the resilience of those systems, to continue delivering basic needs, water and so on. So we see a relationship between the resilience of basic systems and the ability of human societies to shift strategies as conditions change, i.e. to adapt. And, uh, uh, you know, once upon a time I was a a graduate student in archaeology under a professor who uh, said that uh, kind of Lamarckian notions didn't have any role to play in an explanation of how humans behave. But uh, what are your thoughts about that very briefly? Well, my thoughts very briefly are that... uh, We need to acknowledge and recognize that the kind of biological uh, adaptation types of things as applied to a human society neglect questions of agency and people's driving perspectives. And so there's a fundamental difference from applying ecological concepts cut and dry to uh, change in societies because of that agency. But still there are some very basic principles uh, that do cross-cut from our perspective. Well, let's look at the uh, the particulars of, of the Ganges Basin and some of the flooding that was experienced there in uh, 2008, I believe. Well, there have been a whole series of flooding events from uh, the major 2009-2010 floods in Pakistan, earlier floods along the Gangetic Basin, the breach of the Kosi embankments. Um, those are classic issues. The basin has often been conceptualized as water flowing from the top, from the mountains, the water towers, the Himaya, down to the plains. And the classic engineering situation is to say, let's define that variability, let's construct and regulate the rivers, we can put up embankments to protect people, 
Um, but the problem with that is when you don't actually know what the flows are going to be specifically, then your embankments have a much higher chance of breaching when you get unpredictable flows. If you open up the basin in contrast, if you say, well, the approach rather than regulating the flows is to have early warning systems, points of refuge, and that might include protective structures around cities, but what people traditionally do is raise villages. Um, and drainage, then you have a much more robust solution that doesn't depend on your predictive capacities as much. Well, what are the chances of uh, having that sort of a, an open basin concept given the political realities uh, in, in that area? Well, there's certainly more attention globally to living with water, giving space for water. This is uh, a lot of the designs coming out of the Netherlands right now are focused about reopening up the basins that way. It's a difficult question because uh, moving dirt and moving cement is often moving votes. Uh, people want protection. But it is also what people are already doing in many cases, raising villages, raising houses. It's traditional. And there's a huge demand for drainage as well. So things like this are actually movements along those lines. And uh, how are you working with agencies on the ground uh, to implement these notions? We lead on, for example, a major set of work with the Rockefeller Foundation on urban resilience planning. We are currently conducting studies across the Pakistan the Basin, the Indus Basin, looking at uh, what helps people respond post-floods. This is with the government, it's with local NGOs, and it's with organizations such as cities. Now, tell us again about uh, how we can, how the listeners can uh, find your uh, website and find out more in information about your institute. Yeah, well, search for uh, ISET, the Institute for Social and Environmental Transition. We're based here in Boulder. We're also based in Hanoi and Bangkok with staff in India and Pakistan, sister organization ISET Nepal. But uh, the website itself is a little difficult because the uh, URL is complicated. But search for Institute for Social and Environmental Transition, you'll find us. Many thanks for those interesting insights, Marcus. That's Marcus Minch of ISET right here in Boulder. You can learn more about the Institute's work by going to www.i-s-e-t.org. Don't want to leave you too abandoned there. We know we have a pretty smart listenership. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced and engineered by me, Jim Pullen. Susan Moran is our executive producer. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Peter Gabriel and Dave Matthews. The clip of Dr. Ride is courtesy of NASA. Can't listen to How on Earth on our regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Question or comments? Call the KJNU comment line at 303-447-9911 or send us a message on Facebook or Twitter. For How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Jim Pullen.